invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be really staying here for quite some time this evening, so if you want to put a marker there, we're going to be continually coming back to it. Matthew chapter 4. It's good to see everyone out tonight, especially in light of the storms and the tornado warnings. It's Good to be able to just see so many out. Uh, after all of that, it got to about 15 minutes till, and uh, that was when everybody started storming in. So it's, uh, uh, it's just good to see everyone, and I'm glad that everyone's safe. And those that couldn't come out just want to pray for their safety. Uh, I believe I saw it was supposed to be calming down, so hopefully it'll just keep going in that direction. But I do believe we're past the worst of it. It was kind of funny because Paige and I were talking, and I was like, man, it's too bad. Missed opportunity. I should have preached on Jesus calming the storm. But it's uh, you can't plan these things. So, uh, But I, we will be talking specifically about a story of Jesus tonight. And as I said, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4, I want to focus on just the first few verses here when Jesus is being tempted by the devil. This is such a, um, really just a fascinating story to say the least. To see the Son of God, the perfect, the only perfect individual human being to ever live on this earth, have to suffer as much as he did. Not only that, but have to go through just the same really common ailments that we have to suffer through, that we have to deal with on this earth. And, and particularly as he is in the wilderness, uh, as we'll read about in just a moment in the first four verses there, it's just, it's such a beautiful story of how even Jesus was tempted and how even Jesus was uh, tempted while tired and absolutely in need of, of you know, energy, nourishment, what have you. And yet he shows us a good pattern of how we in similar circumstances can deal with the very same temptations. And so I think it's such an encouraging passage to say the least. As I said, we're just going to focus on the first four verses here. And let's go ahead and begin by reading those four verses. It says, And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so again, just the first four verses there. But I do think in just this first temptation, there's, there's so much that we should, should learn from this and take from this. And first of all, I just want to look at this notion of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. It, because that is what you, you are seeing here. Um, I think one of the questions that sometimes comes up when you read a passage like this is, so was Jesus tempted by the Spirit? Because in verse 1 it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But I thought, God never tempts. Well, you'd be correct. God never tempts man to sin. He never would certainly not tempt Jesus to sin. And so, but but how, do we, how do we answer this argument even more so? Now clearly, I think you could go to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. We'll read that in just a moment. But you can just say right there, the Bible says that God never tempts man to sin. But in this passage, we do have to figure out what's, what's happening here. Clearly, God is not tempting uh, Jesus to sin, but what we find is Jesus is being used here to prove the test of God uh, by enduring the temptation of the devil. In verses 1 and 3, it, it, talks, it uses that word, tempted and uh, the, the um, tempter. 
And so, as, as we're going to see uh, in a few different passages, this same Greek word is used in other ways. It's not just used as tempted, but it's also used as tested. In John chapter 6, very quickly, John chapter 6, when Jesus is about to feed the thousands of people, miraculously, John chapter 6 in verse 6, John chapter 6 in verse 6, Speaking to his disciples, uh, he, in verse 5 it says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, and said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now clearly, we wouldn't insert there that Jesus was trying to tempt the disciples. He was testing them. He was trying to really help them come to the right answer. And Jesus did this frequently throughout his ministry, specifically with his disciples. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 in verse 5, the same word is used, but here Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. And so that word again, test, is the same word in Matthew chapter 4 for tempt. Now, obviously, God does not want us to tempt ourselves. But rather, we're supposed to examine ourselves. He wants us to, to prove ourselves. Um, over in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, I know there's really the most uh, uh, verses that we're going to go to in a short amount of time is at the beginning here. But it's just because I, I, think it's, I think it's an important question to answer. I think it's, in a lot of cases, an innocent question to answer. Sometimes people use it dishonestly. But in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, as Jesus is writing to the seven churches of Asia, Revelation chapter 2 in verse 2, it says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have uh, perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So even there you get this, this same notion of proving themselves and going through these various trials. Down in verse 10 you see it again. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now we could go to chapter 3 and verse 10. I don't think we need to. You see how many times this same word is used. And, and all this just to say, I think that it comes down to the context. Because obviously the devil doesn't want anyone to prove themselves in, in, in a test. What is the devil trying to do? He's trying to bring Christians down. He's trying to bring God's people and tear them away from God. And so, obviously, he's trying to tempt them. But what John says, or Jesus says uh, through, through John, is this is going to happen, but it's going to be a test for you. And you need to prove yourselves in this test. Back over in James chapter 1, finally, where we kind of referenced at the beginning, James chapter 1. In verse 13, James chapter 1 in verse 13. <clears throat> James chapter 1 in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, and, and for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Go back up to verse 2. What, is, what does James start with? When, he says, when you encounter these things, don't, don't you go and say, this is God's fault. Go back up to verse 2. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
And so the devil uses these moments to tempt us, but God uses them to strengthen us. And really, I don't think that that should... I don't think that this question, when it ever comes up during a study, whenever someone may ask us this question in a Bible, in, in uh, an evangelistic study, this should never throw us off. This should never be like a curveball that discourages us. This is actually more encouraging because the very same thing that the devil tries to use to tear us away from God and to, and to you know, rip us from salvation, God says, I can use this as a test to prove your faith, as a test to better you, as you see at the beginning of James chapter 1. And I just think that that's a beautiful, a beautiful thought. And how powerful our God is that he gives us this, this ability, this opportunity to be, able to, to, to be able to prove ourselves and produce this endurance through that uh, faithful testing. And so I think it comes down to the question, are you willing to be tested like this? Because it's not going to be easy. You go back to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the peak of, of fleshly weakness. It never says that the temptations are going to be light and easy. In fact, it's most often quite the opposite. And it pushes us to our absolute limits. But what you see here is Jesus gives us this wonderful, beautiful pattern of how to endure this kind of te test, even the temptation of the devil. And, I, and I, it just, again, it comes down to this notion of are you willing to be tested in the same way that Jesus was? Because if not, you will fail the test. And so I think it has to start the conversation at, am, am I willing to be used as a servant that God can point to and say, have you considered this man like Job? If we're not, I, I really think that we're in dangerous territory. And so Jesus proves this test. He is approved by God by, by uh, really renouncing or, or really keeping the devil, pushing him off and at every single turn, specifically in this first temptation. But continuing on, what is the significance of all this? What is the connection or a couple connections that we're supposed to make? Well, first of all, you go back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 in verses 1 and 2. Remember when it talks about how long he was in the wilderness and really the, the circumstances of how he was led into the wilderness. I think you see some major connections between Jesus and Israel and some very important ones that I don't think we're just supposed to overlook. How long was Israel in the wilderness? For 40 years. How long was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. I think that's an interesting connection in comparison that, that we should make. And not just for arbitrary reasons. And because not only was that, would you have that uh, similar or the same number, but who were they led into the wilderness by? God. And in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And they were tempted all along the way while they were in the wilderness, the, the people of Israel. And here again, you have Jesus being tempted again at, at the height of human weakness, where the flesh would be weak. And yet through every single temptation, he is able to push that off. He is able to, to prove himself through this, through this test of God. So Jesus has always shared the trials of his people. I think one thing that this shows us is Jesus is more than willing and he's more than capable of, of going through these same kind of trials. Israel failed almost at every turn. Jesus succeeded not at almost every turn, but every single one. Now, why is that important? Because he succeeded where, where Israel, where everyone else failed. But I think that this connection actually continues today between Jesus and us. 
we, how often does it feel like we're just going through a wilderness? How often does it feel in this life, in this culture, with all of the, maybe we haven't fasted for this long ever in our lives, but you certainly have felt the exhaustion of constant temptation, constant disappointments, constant consequences from sin that maybe you haven't even committed, but just things you have to deal with. Why? Because you're living life on this earth just like everybody else. And even though you don't necessarily deserve all of that, like Jesus, you have to deal with it. And you're expected to get, to get past that in the same way that Jesus got past this, these temptations in the wilderness. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, or Hebrews chapter 11, excuse me. Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13. It said, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And you can even think about some of the similarities between what, what the Hebrew writer here says, and especially with what he talks about the faith of Abraham at the beginning of the chapter. You can really see those connections. But are, are we not also wandering through a wilderness throughout this life, so to speak? Are we not suffering day by day through temptations all throughout this wilderness? What Jesus shows us, go over just a few pages in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. What does it say about Jesus? That he is our high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We're supposed to be literally, by definition, encouraged, strengthened by that. This is something that should motivate us even more. This is something that should give us more courage, more resolve, more conviction in those moments of extreme exhaustion. To know that Jesus wants us to know that he has been through the exact same things and he has had to suffer without, without getting out of any of this just because he was the son of God. No, he, he took it all on himself. In one, for many reasons, but for one reason, to give us an example of how to get through. And so I think that this is an important, uh, these are important connections to make, an important point to make as you think about what he's going through in Matthew chapter 4. Now, moving on past that, I want to focus specifically on the devil's uh, tactic from the very beginning of uh, these three temptations here. In verse 3, it says that the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. I think that this is one of the most interesting temptations because you look at this and you think, What? I mean, honestly, what's the problem here? <laughs> He's just going to be turning stones into bread. How is that sinful? How is that wrong? And at first, I remember when I first started studying this, I thought, <laughs> That is interesting. I think we are benefited and we figure out uh, that answer when you go back to what Jesus is actually quoting over in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, this gives us context of what is happening here. Deuteronomy chapter 8, in verse 2 beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 8 in verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, 
to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so once again, he talks about this testing, right? So Jesus helps us understand what the temptation here is just by quoting this portion of the law. Satan is ultimately trying to get Jesus to act independently of God's will. That's the temptation. It's not just... Nothing that the devil ever says or insinuates is ever innocent. You can always just automatically assume there's something wrong here. But Jesus makes it clear. What the devil is trying to do is get him to make a choice, to commit an action completely outside of consideration of his Father's will. And what Jesus here says is absolutely not. The devil tries to get, not just Jesus, but even today, he tries to get us to meet legitimate needs through illegitimate pathways. I'll say that one more time. He tries to get us to meet legitimate needs through illegitimate pathways. So how do people do this today? Sometimes people will come up and say, you know, I really think that there could be more encouragement out of this worship service. So you know what? We need to add some instruments into this. Because I, I think that this is just going to really help the worship. I think this is really going to... Now, now, there may be legitimacy to trying to better ourselves in the worship service. Whether, from participation to just trying to learn more so that way we can, we can more uh, coherently and smoothly worship God. Make it more understandable, more clear. But, but what is this person trying to do? They're trying to meet a legitimate need through an illegitimate way. A, a way that God said, that, no, no. A way that God has not prescribed in the New Testament. Or another example, someone says, well, we really need help financially. And so what are we going to do? We're going to raise some raffle or some fundraiser, some secular fundraiser, and we're going to use all of that to try and, to try and you know, receive funds so that way we can, we can do the work of the gospel. Yes, we need to be doing the work of the gospel, and we need to be contributing to that. But that doesn't just mean we get to contribute to that in any way we deem ne- that we deem even necessary. That is a legitimate need. But what are we trying to do? We're trying to, we're trying to meet that need through an illegitimate, through a sinful, through an unauthorized, unscriptural path. And so this is what the devil's trying to do with Jesus from the very beginning. He's trying, and really that's, that's all the devil tries to do. He always tries to get us to forget that God's will, that's the only thing that matters. Not what do I think is best right now. Because let me tell you something. How, how often have you looked back on, on some really highly emotional issue when you've calmed down and thought, man, I was at the top of my game up here when I was, <laughs> when, when I was freaking out about everything. I remember there's been several moments like this outside when we were in Mississippi. It was like this a lot of the time, and it got really severe. And there were several decisions that that I would make (laughs) that just, it wasn't out of fear. It was just out of, wow, that's really cool. So I would go outside and stand in the the rain, and then Paige would make a comment later on and say, you know, I, I am pregnant, and if you get struck by lightning and die, guess what? Hawk is raised without a father, and I have to raise him without a husband. (laughs) And I was like, okay, yeah, that's probably... Probably not the best idea. I, I just wasn't thinking. Clearly, that is a dumb decision. But at the time, I just wasn't thinking. I was just too excited. But this is how the devil works. He wants us to make decisions based upon the emotional high or the emotional low or just the emotional confusion. We can't allow Satan to, to use those opportunities. We have, to, we have to center ourselves, tether ourselves, as Christ did, to the Father. Now, 
This brings us to the second point, which is that the devil strikes at opportune moments. He knows what he's doing. He always tempts us at, at the most critical times. You see this so clearly in verse 3. He, what is he doing? He's appealing to the weakness of the flesh at its peak. Why, Jesus, why starve yourself? Don't you know what you're supposed to be doing on earth? Don't you know that you can't just die in this wilderness? Why are you starving yourself? A lot, I mean, I, I would hear that and I'd be like, that's, that's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't go 40 minutes without eating anything. And so that would be pretty tempting. But here, he is actually starving, not just the way sometimes kids and, and, and even, frankly, some of us adults will say, oh, I'm starving. Really? Are your bones sticking out of your stomach? No, you're not starving. You're just, you're just peckish. He was literally starving. Forty days of fasting. All to go through this test. Now, so sometimes people will bring up a so-called moral dilemma. And, and, and I remember some, someone even asked me this one time in high school. They were like, so they were just incredulous against the, the notion of biblical truth. And they said, so would it really be a sin for someone to steal food if their kids were starving? And it was just all kinds of silly questions like that. My thought is, what do you think Jesus would do in that moment? I mean, this was a person that said they believed, they thought that Jesus was, you know, the way. How do you think he would have responded? What do you think he would have done? I'll tell you what, I don't think he would have sinned. And yet it's such a, it's such a strong uh, moral dilemma. Well, are you really going to stand the test? Is your religion really going to stand the test of this? Yeah, I think it will. Because Jesus already did this. He's already gone through the worst of it. Go over to John chapter 5. I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. John chapter 5. Look at what Jesus says about his Father's will. John chapter 5, verse 19, first of all. He says, uh, he answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Skip down to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus did not take one step without consideration of his Father's will. This is the kind of devotion that I like to, to make a connection to when we read a verse like Colossians 3 and verse 17. Whatever you do in, the word, in order, do you do all in the name of the Lord. I, I wonder how often people quote that, and then they look at Jesus' example, who literally, literally would not do one thing without the will of his Father expressed. What is Jesus saying? I will sit here and starve to death before I act outside of my Father's will. Would we do that in moments of exhaustion, when our resolve is weak, when we have just been tempted and, and tried over and over and over again, we don't know what to make of the situation. We, we need to look at this example of Christ and, and really, really incorporate this, this, this his habit, his, his conviction and resolve into our own lives. Because Satan knows what he's doing. And he will... He will wait for the moments of weakness in the future. Even if we do well now, 
It's not like he's just never going to come back. Look at the end of uh, the, the passage. Actually, go over to Luke chapter 4 this time. The, the parallel account, Luke chapter 4 in verse 13. What does it say that the devil does? After he's done all of these temptations, after Jesus has just completely thwarted him, what does it say in Luke chapter 4 in verse 13? When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him forever. He left him until an opportune time. He was not finished. He was going to continue this work of trying to get the Son of God to completely fail. Now we know how the story goes. He's not going to fail. Jesus isn't. But, but we need to recognize this fact. that don't, don't think that just because I have won round one, that that means the devil is just, oh, well, that's just unfortunate. I'm, I'm just too mad to even continue. He's going to come back. And so we need to be ready. We need to know how we're going to answer when that temptation comes yet again. And so I want to end with really how do we endure in the moments as Jesus and how are we going to endure when we've already been tried and we have, we have come out on the other side, maybe not unscathed, but at least still in a relationship with God. How do we prepare ourselves for the moment when the devil comes back again and strikes at an opportune time. Well, first of all, just, just three things that I want to mention about Jesus here. How did Jesus get through? Well, first of all, in the moment of exhaustion, his strength is repeating his father's words. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. He is quoting the law. He's quoting the, what the Holy Spirit wrote down centuries and centuries and centuries before. Now, that, I don't think that that's just, I don't, I don't think that that's just for, for no reason. You look back just a, a chapter before this account in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. What a beautiful moment where Jesus is baptized. And then what happens in verse 17? Behold, the voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I can't imagine that Jesus would have just heard that and said, oh, Whatever. <laughs> what would he, he would have kept that. He would have kept that hidden in his heart. He would have kept that ever on his mind because he knows why he's on this earth. He is here for this very purpose, to do the will of his Father. Do you think Jesus would have just shrugged that off? Or does he cling to what the Father says? I think one of the main reasons that Christians fail today is because we don't cling as tightly and as desperately to the Word as, as we see biblical examples do especially like Jesus. He would not let it go. When tempted with anxiety, do we repeat out loud what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. When, when I begin to have that extreme anxiety, do I say that out loud? That's what Jesus did. He quoted scripture. That's what kept him tethered. When our eyes wander, do we repeat what, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 30? If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think it would behoove us to do that. It's interesting. I remember talking to someone who deals with a lot of uh, who deals with Christians who have mental illnesses and, and a lot of people that they talk to with anxiety. I was just saying, how, you know, what are some things, what are some tips that you give to people like that? And one of the things that they said was literally say out loud, stop. Literally say something to that effect. When you know that your mind is going crazy and going off the rails, what do you do? You, you verbally say out loud, stop it. 
And apparently that helps. Because what are you doing? You're not just keeping it all up in here. You're, you're making effort. You're, you're making, spending energy to try and stop that before it spirals out of control. And what Jesus says is when it comes to lust, when it comes to your eyes, and when it comes to gazing upon something that you shouldn't be or thinking about something you shouldn't be, he goes to that extreme example. Are, are, are we quoting the words of our Lord when we come into these moments? Are we just letting it take over our thoughts quietly? When our hearts blaze with fury at a brother, do we repeat 1 John 3 and verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life. I think it would really help us to quote these things. Because when you say that out loud, no murderer has eternal life? What are you saying? If I go down this road, I won't have that eternal life. The Father has said so. And I think we need to do that more often. We need to be able to find this kind of comfort in the Father's words like Jesus. If we don't do this, I don't, I don't know what can keep us tethered. And so he found comfort in his Father's words. But beyond that, I think he could find comfort in, in his Father's word because it wasn't just surface for him. He viewed it as a necessity of life. What does he say in John chapter 4 and verse 34? Again, another verse that I think is just so beautiful as he talks about the, the nourishment of the word. John 4 and verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We read in the Beatitudes, Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You know, <laughs> Jesus really did hunger and thirst for righteousness, he was righteousness. You know what that looks like? It looks like what Jesus says here. My very nourishment is God's will, is God's word. Often Christians struggle to resist temptation simply because they don't view the Father's will like this, as mortally important, as sustenance, just simply as a pastime. Or maybe not even just as a pastime, but just as, ah, I'll, I'll get to that later. Let me tell you something. If we ever think in our minds, Oh, I can just get to that later. It doesn't, you know, there's plenty of other things that are more important to do right now. I, 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 now let me just, I'm not saying that, that sometimes you know, the day just gets crazy and all of a sudden there's a, there's a really high priority. But when we just continually uh, put that on the back burner, put the Bible reading on the back burner, do it over and over and over again, constantly for just anything, we don't view it as sustenance the way Jesus did. Instead, it's just viewed as secondary. I'll get around to it. Let's just come back to that. Let's put it on the back burner. This person does not view the Father's will as Jesus did. Finally, I would say, I think all of this is connected by he was not caught off guard. What I mean by that is Jesus hasn't spent time throughout his whole life idly. He's been preparing. It's not like Jesus comes to this point and he's just like, oh, I don't know what to do. That's what a lot of Christians do today. We come into a point where, where we have to give an answer, where we have to make a defense for the hope that is in us. And we just don't know how because we haven't been preparing. We've been idle in the faith. And what happens when we have been idle, when we come into temptation, we will always fail. You want to know why Jesus could repeat Scripture? Because he spent the time in it every day. You want to know why he had resolve in exhaustion? Because he had prepared himself even in the comfortable moments. He didn't just wait for those, those terrifying moments. 
He wasn't lost in the wilderness because he was tethered to his father's promises. And so the question is, what about us? Are we preparing? Are we reading? Are we building up a craving for his word? Are we, are we spending the time now and the energy now to, to build that conviction, to be able to give a defense for the hope that is in us? Because I'll tell you what, we will never succeed if we don't start doing what Jesus did. Spending time with the Father in prayer. Spending time in His Word. Committing it. Not, not just to memory, but to our hearts. As it says in Psalm 119 and verse 11, I've hid, my heart, I've hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I love that verse. Are you willing to do that? I, I, you may be a Christian and maybe you feel like you have been struggling with temptations. Maybe a specific temptation in your life. Don't let it remain hidden. Don't let it remain secret. Let the word of God expose that. Make sure that you are letting the word of God expose that. Make sure that if you're, you're, you need accountability, you use the brethren here. If you're not a Christian, just remember, you've already failed. All of us have failed. Every single one of us in this room. Every single one of us has sinned against God and has fallen short of his glory. And therefore, we need Jesus. We need a Savior. If you do not accept his conditions to find salvation, let me tell you something. There is no hope of success. You will consistently fail every single time. And so are you willing to put him on in baptism? Are you willing to, to repent of your sins, to confess his name, to, to have, be faithful till death so that you can rise in uh, be resurrected with him in the judgment? If you're willing, if you're subject to the invitation of Christ, please let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.